I want to take a moment to acknowledge the people who've made this year's series possible. First and foremost, as always, Alex Andrews from Swap Behind Bars, Laura Lemoon, who's been doing research and writing with me, Melanie Dante and Bella Robinson from Coyote, Rhode Island, who have maintained the memorial list and been gracious enough to share it with me. I also have to note that while not graphic, today's episode is about a death by suicide. If that's a sensitive topic for you, you may want to skip this one, or you can read the transcript at the Swap Behind Bars blog. I met Landon when I was putting together last year's December 17th series, and was honored that he was willing to share his loved one with us. We spent a long time talking about Diana. The way Landon talks about Diana, who he refers to as the love of his life, is unique in that he's so present, so very much still enamored of who she was and still is to him, that he doesn't just present a memorial, but a robust and nuanced picture of the life they built together. I lost my own partner six years ago, and in writing about and describing him, that's always been one of my biggest hurdles. How do I distill these formative yet finite memories into something bite-sized and relatable without forsaking the depth and breadth of a human's life? This comes naturally to Landon, maybe due to his love for Diana and own storytelling ability, but also likely because of what a colorful and engaging woman she was. According to the obituary written by her colleagues at Swap USA, Diana, who was 46 at the time of her death in December of 2016, was, quote, known for tireless activism around trans and queer issues, sex worker rights, disability rights, economic justice, racism, and issues impacting the kink community. Diana started the first local chapter of SWAP in South Florida. She was also a photographer, jewelry maker, and sculptor. For anyone that knew her online or in real life, she exuded selflessness and compassion. Aside from her contributions to these movements at large, Diana focused heavily on improving activism spaces for marginalized individuals. Inclusivity was a top priority for her, and she was not afraid to prompt the circles in which she worked towards self-examination. It was this dogged, fearless pursuit that first caught Landon's attention. She sat on the planning committee for here in South Florida, and there was a pretty large blunder, a um, white gay man in the community uh, plagiarized a speech by a trans woman of color at that particular TDOR event, which um, was really just abhorrent. And um, we actually started meeting in, uh, in a group of people trying to figure out how to address, um, you know, his actions. And I noticed straight away that Diana was just unbelievably brilliant. Um, she came to our first meeting prepared with a list of offenses that had taken place um, and who was culpable and responsible for each one of them. And um, I was just fascinated instantly by her intellect and her, her nuance and the way that she took a super complex situation and really distilled it into something that all of us in that space could wrap our minds around and begin to understand in terms of how to move forward. So that's one of my earliest memories. Um, but she also started doing my HIV STI testing at some point. Actually, I guess at the time, just HIV. And at one point, uh, she had come to my house to do testing. And uh, she said, you know, um, I, I really enjoy our company. And, you know, if you ever want to hang out sometime, um, I'd, I'd love to do that. And I, you know, I didn't really make a whole lot of it. But after she left us processing that, and I'm like, was, was, did she just hit on me? And then I started talking to some folks. They're like, oh, yeah, she's totally hit on me. 
so we uh, we went out for a drink after my next test with her a few months later, and um, it was Whiskey Wednesday at one of the bars in the area, actually a bar that I used to work at um, when I was in that industry, and uh, we just sat there and had one whiskey, which turned into maybe four or five whiskeys, and um, that led to just a, an incredible evening and um, the start of a three-and-a-half-year relationship that was honestly just filled with authenticity, magic, um, so much learning and, and growth for me as a person and for us together. But then sometimes we just like get together, uh, you know, and, and we realized we were talking for four hours before you knew it. And so months and months and months went by with us like being like, what, what do we even, what do we call this? And like, you know, being anti-label, um, for a long time we actually just made a big joke and called each other uh, laybays. <laughs> so uh, just kept it really light for, for about six months or so. And um, I think the first term that we might have used was uh, boyfriend-girlfriend, uh, pretty conventional. Um, but after after a few years, um, we eventually did begin to call each other partner and not without a whole lot of discussion and intention. You know, when once we got closer and closer and we talked – I would say every day, usually through written communication, Diana was neuroatypical, um, unfortunately spent most of her life likely with undiagnosed Asperger's and um, did not prefer to be on the phone at all, just really didn't appreciate oral communication and struggled with it. So we, we talked mostly through written communication, through text and we had different numbers we were always texting on all the time. I had a work phone, she had a work phone, we both had personal phones, but then we also had Facebook and so... Um, just on Facebook alone, I've realized we have about 75,000 messages over the course of almost four years' time. Um, we talked almost daily. I mean, our, our, our check-ins would sometimes turn into hours of, of, um, of texting back and forth. And um, she was just uh, my everything. I mean, she was, she, was, um, she was someone who loved to really honor my love languages. I mean, I saw her generally speaking on the weekends. We um, we actually made that work. I, I would have been glad to live with her, but she loved to have her own space. And um, on weekends, I would show up and there would always be some sort of a surprise for me. Pretty much every Saturday night, she picked up something, you know, whether it was a treat or a movie or whatever it was, there was just always something to look forward to. Um, but she was also just like my fixer upper of all things. Like I moved into my apartment without knowing how to hang large pieces of art. And I think of her all the time. I look around and I'm like, I still don't even know how that got done. You know, like, um, but we also just had a ton of fun together. You know, um, she really loved to do new things and see new things. And we had a lot of new experiences together. We both took a cruise for the first time together and just really, it felt like we were really just starting to see the world. Um, when things came to a screeching halt. Um, I could talk for hours about the um, the magic and the beauty and the love that she brought into our relationship and into my life, for sure. Diana was a tremendously hardworking, dedicated person, both in her work and her relationships. She was also ardently independent. The force of her personality and her hard-won independence could have a dark side, though. The thoughtfulness she brought to activism and nonprofit work could be draining, leaving her feeling constantly exposed to and impacted by the endless injustices of the world. 
the same determination that enabled her to claw her way toward living her truth and holding her own space in the world could leave her feeling isolated and unable to ask for help even from those to whom she was closest. Um, so, Diana, you know, between um, being someone who was, you know, neurodivergent and someone who likely had also um, had uh, bipolar disorder for most of her life, largely untreated, you know, there were a lot of things that she was battling, up, um, you know, really navigating the world to begin with sort of as a baseline. But then on top of that, you know, she was really um, well-read and really nuanced around social justice. And so I think for most of us who do any form of social justice work, the more you know, um, the less you can unlearn it. And so navigating spaces can be really difficult, even just everyday spaces. You know, watching TV shows can sometimes be triggering um, once you're really hyper aware of all of the injustice in the world. And I think that was the case for her, um, especially with as much as she read and as much as she studied for so many years and as many types of activism she engaged in, um, you know, she was just really brilliant. And I think because of all of the mental health stuff and the neurodivergent, all of that brilliance was, um, there was, there was like, uh, it was like, a, she once described it to me as like a, you know, a volume dial just turned way, way up on everything from sensory things to injustice as well. And um, I think things just became harder and harder for her. She had been working in, um, she did many, many things in terms of, of her life, she, lots of careers and um, went from being a, a master auto tech to a minister to uh, working in code enforcement. I mean, she really did so many different things. Um, and then all of her skills um, after she uh, went through a gender transition really aligned for her to best serve the community through activism but, and boots on the ground. And she went into working in nonprofit. She was doing some really great work in HIV, particularly with trans and non-binary people, as I've mentioned. And um, unfortunately, after a couple of years of doing that work at a really large organization, her program was eliminated without much explanation um, or cause, and certainly nothing to my knowledge that she had done. Um, this is just often the case with a lot of programs that serve trans non-binary people. And um, when the program was eliminated and her position was sort of demoted, it took a huge toll on her. She was doing important work, meaningful work, and impactful work. I mean, it really was making a difference in the lives of trans sex workers specifically. And um, that was what I call the beginning of her end. In anticipation of what was to come, she started doing dominatrix work. And so um, she decided to pursue that full time for a couple months and was actually incredibly successful. She was very excited about it. She started a website. She really got her business up and running very fast. After, you know, a few months of doing that, she said, you know, I think that the business might be even more lucrative if I'm willing to push my own boundaries and to actually do some escorting work. And that's the direction that um, that she moved in. And within a couple of years, she had been raped twice in the work. And of course, um, we know all the complexities that come along with that and not being able to really pursue it or address it in any sort of um you know, way that promoted her own healing, but certainly that would have addressed the injustice of all of that, I think was really difficult, corrosive for her from the inside out. So there was that. And then, um, you know, during that time, just like the rest of the areas and of the rest of the things that she cared about, she took on sex worker rights as part of her activism. And so she became um, very visible and open about her experiences doing both dom work and escorting and, um, began to build community with other sex workers, particularly on Twitter, and uh, 
you know, she was really, I think she was really contributing to some meaningful change, um, both locally and abroad. She had been so incredibly visible throughout those couple of years of being a sex worker. Um, and, you know, you combine that visibility with her long-standing history of challenging nonprofits in particular, and um, she just, no one wanted her. No one, no organization locally in South Florida wanted to give her a job. She applied for many, uh, many of which are still in existence, and um, nobody would bring her on board. And folks um, didn't really give her a whole lot of insight as to why. Um, but of course, in light of her passing, I've done some digging and had some vulnerable conversations with folks and have gotten um, a much better understanding, you know, and, and all of my hunches have been spot on. People were afraid that she would call them out for unfair labor practices or that she would call them out for, um, you know, <laughs> all the different things that nonprofits um, engage in. That's obviously a different podcast. But uh, so at one point she told me she felt like a a track star who was sitting on the sidelines watching the runners, um, you know, from, from a wheelchair. Diana liked and was successful at sex work, but its dangers and disappointments led her to feel she needed another hiatus. Unfortunately, returning to civilian work proved harder than anticipated. On top of having burned some bridges with her penchant for keeping organizations accountable, she also faced stigma for being open about sex work and found herself largely shut out of the field to which she hoped to return. As her options and savings dwindled, she expressed to Landon her terror at the possibility of losing the independence she'd worked so hard to achieve and maintain. She felt desperate and like she might become a burden for him. This is a tragically common thought spiral for people with caretaker personalities, and it's an incredibly difficult one to break from, no matter how much support a person has. She kept telling me, I'm going to be homeless again. I'm going to be homeless again. And I kept trying to reassure her, you're not going to be homeless. And I wouldn't let that happen. I'm right here. You know, we can live together if need be. But she'd always been the breadwinner, breadwinner in her relationships. And um, the idea of having a partner have to take care of her, I think, was also somewhat debilitating. So her biggest fear was re-experiencing homelessness and losing her stability, her apartment, all that she had built. Um, when she developed what she believed to be a bowel obstruction at the end of 2016. Um, she went for seven days, really unable to eat, unable to even drink much in the way of water. Um, despite how she was feeling, we kind of went out for what I now can see was one last hurrah. Probably she, she had some sense of that as well. We had a great weekend together. Um, Sunday night, when I would usually go home, or, or Monday night sometimes, whatever night it was, she asked me, um, you know, not to leave. and. I said, you know, I got to go home. I had just gotten a new cat and <laughs> needed to get home um, to feed him. And um, I said, but, you know, I'll come back up if I can. And I said, you know, are you able to eat? And I asked her, and she said, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm not. And I've got to consider going to the hospital here shortly. And I asked her to please do that and to let me know if she was going to go, because, of course, you know, I would show up to support her. Um, being trans and going to the hospital is difficult enough, let alone being a trans sex worker going to the hospital. And um, the next call that I got from an unknown number which I thought was likely her calling me from the hospital was actually the Martin County Sheriff's Department telling me that she had taken her life in a state park about an hour north of where she lived. One of my own personal trauma reactions, and I've kind of had this for as long as I can remember, is 
I get really sick in my belly and I was absolutely sick. I, I was walking out of um, a local Indian restaurant with um, my, my work colleagues at the time and um, a couple of them had stuck around and we were just chatting as we were walking to the parking lot and I was just, I was instantly sick. Um, and then I jumped into action. There was really, I didn't give myself a ton of time to think. I think in part because I knew that she was a visible sex worker. I was very concerned about her apartment being raided. I was concerned about her property, um, you know, being taken. I, I really didn't know from a legal perspective what would happen. You know, we didn't have any legal rights to each other, um, you know, each other's property or, or, or space or anything. And so I was just obviously had keys to her apartment and she told me at one point, you know, if anything ever happened that I could always let myself in, um, you know, grab whatever I, I wanted, you know, and that um, she would sort of never leave me high and dry and she definitely kept her word. And she had written me a three-page letter and left a care package for me. Um, <laughs> just like even in death, she made sure that I was going to be taken care of. She left me, you know, what little bit of cash she had and um, she purchased some gift cards um, so that I think in her mind, I, she knew that I would, I would at least eat and, you know, the, the basics. She actually also left all of my Christmas gifts wrapped sitting next to, next to her desk. And um, she wrote a note on the wrapping paper directly. Uh, very typical Diana wrote right on the wrapping paper um, a note on each of the gifts. Closure, it's always a misnomer at best. At worst, it's a cruel myth. But the idea of closure when someone's actions directly lead to their death is nothing short of laughable. Landon has spent the last five years contending with the decision Diana made to end her life. And while he shares her beliefs around end-of-life autonomy, there will always be a massive chasm between those beliefs, his understanding of her state of mind when she died, and the crushing, complicated grief he's been saddled with as a result. And maybe those things can't be reconciled. Maybe they can only be experienced, acknowledged, and lived through. I genuinely thought that even if we weren't together forever as partners, um, that she would be in my life for, you know, for the duration of, of, of our time on this earth. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm very open and, and transparent about that with people in my life now um, who have suicidality, folks struggling with suicidality around them. Like, just because someone is talking about it, a lot of people assume that means that they're not going to do it because they're talking about it, and that's actually not true at all. Um, it's a conversation that we had pretty often, and, um, you know, she believed heavily in autonomy and end-of-life decisions, and um, she did what she needed to do to um, to exit from the suffering at that time. And I, you know, a lot of people say that she didn't really love you. I've heard some really awful things in light of her passing, and I think um, quite the opposite. I think uh, because she loved me so 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 much, uh, that that's actually part of why she made her decision. She didn't want to be what she perceived at the time um, was a burden to me. Which of course that's not at all how I perceived it. But when you put those experiences through the lens of all the rejection she had faced and um, years and years and years of trauma, I can see how like all of those things really intersected to give her the basis for what was ultimately a very final decision. You know, she, her note to me communicates very well that she loved me. You know, she says that I was the greatest love of her life. And so 
um, you know, I, I've had to really sort of um, navigate the things that have come up that, if, that people have said. Uh, sometimes when I have a lot of energy and fervor around it, I will challenge those things. But of course, early on, I didn't have that capacity and they were just really damaging to hear. And, you know, anyone who's gone through a suicide, um, who's experienced and is a suicide survivor, experienced the suicide of, of someone close to them knows that, you know, I, I would say almost bigger than the grief process is the question process. It's just like a seemingly unending string of questions. And um, I was just sitting here thinking, uh, you know, before we connected that, like, uh, there are times that that still questions pop into my mind that I don't have answers for. I, I really do think that the biggest fear for her was become a, becoming a burden to me. You know, most people sort of know the narrative that, that of the broke social worker and, um, you know, despite how much um, time and energy I put into my schooling and into my career, the reality is I wasn't making very much money. I was working in nonprofit, and I mean, as someone who had spent a lot of time in nonprofits herself, as I said, you know, I think she was just like, I can't imagine putting all of my needs on um, my partner, you know, and. Um, it didn't matter that I said to her, you know, like, we've got it, like, we can handle it. Diana made the choice to end her life. Whether or not that was premature, no matter how anyone, even those closest to her, feel about it, it's not for us to decide or judge. What is for us to judge is the world we create, the systems we uphold, and the positions those elements leave vulnerable people in. In his 2013 essay, Now We Are Five, about his sister's suicide, David Sedaris wrote, quote, I don't know that it had anything to do with us, my father said, but how could it have not? Doesn't the blood of every suicide splash back in our faces? The Trevor Project released its second national survey on LGBTQ youth mental health in 2020 which revealed that 48% of survey respondents had engaged in self-harm in the preceding 12 months. Sex workers, trans folks, neurodivergent people, people facing ongoing housing insecurity, all are at massively heightened risk for suicide. Some people can bear these truths by placing responsibility solely at the feet of the individual. Others turn their fear, anger, sadness, and helplessness inward and blame themselves. The truth exists, as always, in more subtle gradations. In the years since Diana's death, Landon has faced down every conceivable reaction to her decision and to his experience. The takeaway? It's comforting to assign blame, but it doesn't alleviate the suffering of those left behind by suicide. Understanding helps. Unconditional community support helps. Honoring the memories of our lost loved ones and taking full-throated, fearless action to prevent the circumstances like those that led to Diana's death helps. Because of the work that I continue to do in South Florida, because it's the work that means something to me, um, I have to engage with a lot of organizations, institutions, and people that did direct harm to, um, you know, to Diana. And it has been, that has added an extra layer of difficulty on top of the grief and the frustration and all of the questioning that we've talked about. 
having to navigate the very entities that I believe are in a lot of ways most responsible for her decision. That's not to say that, you know, I remove any responsibility that she has for making the decision she made. But when we look at the precipitating factors and employment and housing being the two greatest motivators for her decision, I mean, if she had had great health insurance, um, a stable position and, and an adequate income, there's no way, I don't think there's any way at all she wouldn't have gone and gotten the, the medical care that she needed and she would have felt at choice to go where she needed to go to get that care but as someone who was uninsured who was trans who was a sex worker and who didn't have stable income you know like it, it's like where, where do you go to get good care when a medical crisis pops up I think most grief uh, for folks who experience a suicide of especially of a partner or um, intimate family member, child, et cetera, parent. Um, I think in general, it's probably diagnostically complex grief, but when you add in the complexity of all of the harm that took place and all of the folks who were involved in that harm and complicit in that harm and me still having to like be in spaces, work with a lot of these folks, engage with them, see them, it has been really, 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 really difficult um, for me. And at the same time, as I said earlier, it's also what fuels me in the work. It's why I do a lot of what I do. I believe that, that South Florida in particular is capable of some incredible, making some incredible strides of really making positive impacts on people's lives who are trans, who are sex workers, um, who are neurodivergent and, and all of the intersections and all of the above, right? Um, but some real honest conversations need to happen for that to to really be the case in a community. But some of the feedback I, that I've received directly is like, I'm too negative. Well, like, what do you expect? Like, the series of factors that led up to taking the person I love most off the planet are, are pretty negative. Like, I really wear Diana's story like skin. I, I feel like in a lot of ways she passed me her knapsack of trauma, and I... I don't really have a choice but to carry it, and I'm not going to hide or deny um, any aspect of her story to make others comfortable, and the ways in which her story has become part of my story, I'm certainly not. And so, you know, while that's been a really difficult piece of my healing um, journey, it's also a really important piece, and for some, those who are willing to listen, it's part of what moves them when I open my mouth. I think a lot of people think about, you know, violence against sex workers or violence against trans people as what they typically understand or what they typically know to be definitions of violence, right? We think of um, anti-trans homicide, we think of hate crimes, we think of verbal assault, we think of physical assault, um, we think of assault, right? And I think um, violence against sex workers and, and trans folks and trans sex workers especially is actually far more broad, far more nuanced, and a lot of it is very insidious and hidden and tucked away. Um, you know, like so many people are forced out of jobs where they were doing well when they begin their transition. Um, so many trans people who have served in, you know, in the sex industry and the sex worker movement, um, it really don't have a lot of opportunities should they decide to leave that work in some capacity. And um, I think 
you know, just from like a resources perspective, a resource perspective and an access perspective, I think that that is um, what we're not talking about enough. Violence is so much more broad and um, and all-encompassing, right? And systemic violence toward um, trans folks and trans sex workers is really uh, way more nuanced than what people think of and typically describe as violence. That obviously doesn't discount any of the other types of violence we've talked about, um, but employment and income and housing are at the root of people's very basic survival. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and if you don't have shelter and you don't have adequate income in the country that we're in, especially because capitalism reigns, um, every other piece of your survival, your health, mental health, and wellness are really challenged. I would want people to remember her as a truth teller. I would want them to remember her as um, someone who was willing to challenge systems, institutions, the status quo, even at a real cost to herself because she saw that it could make an impact on the greater good, um, particularly for communities, people in communities that she was a part of. Um, I'd like her to be remembered as someone who brought out authenticity in others. I think her authenticity and vulnerability really made others feel safe to be that, you know, themselves. And that's not only like a huge contribution to the planet, right? Like what would happen if we could all just move through the world as our like most authentic selves? Um, but I think it was also a huge contribution to many movements, at least locally. Yeah, I mean, just, there's just so much I could say, but, but certainly someone who was really willing to put her neck on the line to be in solidarity, both with communities she was a part of and those she was not a part of, and um, I think really modeled what, in a lot of ways, genuine allyship in the purest forms that we talk about it. Um, and I recognize that that's a loaded and complex term, but that's really what I think it looked like and I think her memory continues certainly to fuel my activism, my truth telling, my authenticity and vulnerability, but I'm also really clear that there are others that she impacted in that same way and certainly by me living that way as much as I possibly can, I know that others are also um, afforded that opportunity sometimes in my space and so I think that those are some of the those are some of the highlights. But oh my goodness, there's just so much I could say. You know, really, she was just an unbelievable dynamic human being, and I for sure never met anyone like her. Thank you, Landon, for your candor and for such generosity with your memories. Today, we remember Diana Hemingway. <laughs> 